really ties into uh, what you were saying before about the belief now is not if there's going to be a kinetic confrontation with China, but when. And there's a lot of focus on China's Indo-Pacific strategy as far as the South China Sea or Taiwan. But from everything you're mentioning with the, the ports, the uh, alliances with other authoritarian regimes like Iran and Russia active in Latin America, uh, as well as the space factor with this, it's, it seems like a war won't be fought far away. It will be fought on America's doorstep. No, absolutely. I think that's the big, that's the big uh, kind of takeaway. Um, you know, and I've, I've made this argument for, for about 10 years because, you know, if we go 10 years ago, uh, most people in Latin America believed that China was simply an economic partner. They thought this, 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 the talk about China's military dimensions or its preparation for warfare, they thought that was too alarmist. That's a, a mischaracterization of the transformation that China's took um, uh, over the years, uh, opening markets and things like that. But those that were astute observers of China, people that I talked to, I don't, I'm not an expert on China, but people that I know that were, were telling me a lot of that is just window dressing. I mean, you know, we saw this with Russia, right? They did privatization, but they didn't change the rule of law, you know? Uh, and then once they uh, broke, uh, you know, their, 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 once they broke the, 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 their agreements with Hong Kong, in 2017, it kind of showed that they're no longer all things off the table. And when they signed that national security law, that was really an indicator that China is no longer going to respect any international norms or treaties, and they're going to move on the entire world. Um, and I argued with our, many of our Latin American friends and counterparts that these economic, so-called economic investments in their country are going to suck them into a global conflict, a conflict that they don't want to be a part of, but but they're going to be a part of because Latin America wasn't a heavy actor in World War One and World War II, it was mostly fought in the European area of operation. But as you mentioned, I think this time Latin America is going to be a major theater of operation for a conflict because of China, because China has brought Latin America into that conflict. And then the last part of that is that to say that, you know, as, you know, China had this big bonanza, right? This big uh, economic boom with the commodities pricing and the, the commodity super cycle. So Latin America and China capitalized on that in the sense that they, you know, all the raw materials that are in Latin America, the minerals, the metals, and the oil and everything, it all ended up uh, getting sent to China because they, they capitalized on that moment. But that's not the case. There is no commodity super cycle. China's economy is suppressing. They have a housing crisis. They have a banking crisis. Um, they're not going to be able to, you know, Xi uh, Jinping's not going to be able to come like Hu Jintao and say $100 billion in the next five years. That's not going to happen. Um, but uh, what I w- would re- caution my Latin American friends is to say that China, that whole time that they were building this economic relationship with Latin America, it wasn't even to help China's economy. You know, it wasn't just to feed their growing uh, uh, GDP. It was actually meant to help their defense industry because as China's economy suppresses, their defense industry grows, that military civil fusion strategy that you're discussing, and those critical raw, rare earth uh, metals and minerals, and specifically lithium, is not because of China's economy, it's because of China's defense industry needs that. They need that to be able to empower their AI. They need to be able to power their fifth generation warfare, or as you know, Shang Zhuxiao calls their intelligent warfare. And so Latin America has become critical for their war plans. But most Latin Americans think this is just an economic uh, uh, endeavor by China. And, and, and that's, I think, proven to be wrong. I mean, what about the space program? Because you mentioned that there's these, um, these two satellite bases, right? You've got one in Venezuela, which is presumably near the equator. And then you've got one in like a remote part of Argentina, which is essentially on the opposite side of the planet from Beijing, right? So you've got like, so there's, there's space advantages there. And, and 
World War III or whatever war comes with China potentially is going to be largely um, or at least partially fought in space. Um, what do these uh, space observatories that are actually run by the PLA, what like what role are they potentially going to play? No, that's huge. I mean, I mean, in, in, in yeah, so they actually have eleven in in South America. Oh, I eleven. Guess. Okay, that's great. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I mentioned this. You know, they, they, this the largest space infrastructure in the world for China is in Latin America, uh, and I think that's that's a big big tell of how how uh, pri- prioritized Latin America is in their in their grand strategy and their geopolitical ambitions. Um, it, actually, Argentina has three. Uh, the the one the, the the one further south in in Neuquén is the only deep space station that they have. Um, um, the other two are more for local. Um, but nonetheless, um, let me give you a story about this because I think it'll, it'll kind of really encapsulate what I was talking about before about how they tricked Latin America. And in some cases tricked, in some cases had willful autocratic partner. But in this is a little bit of both because the, the deals for that space station were negotiated under a previous president, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, who was aligned with Chavez and all the socialist bloc of Latin America. So I don't think she was tricked. I think she was she was corrupt and she probably got paid and she made this deal. Uh, but what's interesting, when the government changed hands in 2015, Christina Fernandez Kirchner went away, uh, became a senator, and the new president, Mauricio Macri, came in, much more pro-U.S., much more economic, uh, you know, free market-oriented businessmen, uh, wanted to look at the space station. There was a lot of debate about it within the Argentine Congress because they tried to ratify the station uh, with through the Argentine Congress to make it permanent. And they actually did that. They were successful in that. And they gave it a 50-year concession with a 15-year renewal. So it's uh, for 100 years going to be there uh, according to the Argentine law. Um, uh, but the, they wanted to renegotiate the deal to be able to add more transparency because as it stands today, the Argentinians don't, can't even visit the space station without making an appointment. Uh, so it's like it's really silly. It's on their sovereign territory and they can't do anything about it. It's literally like another embassy. Uh, so they wanted to renegotiate it. So they sent their foreign minister to Beijing to essentially uh, uh, find mechanisms to in- increase the transparency on the station, not to take it away, not to shut it down. Just, you know, create it. I think they wanted to have a board, like a transparency board so that they could look at the equipment that's being shipped in and out. And China very diplomatically said, yes, Mr. President Macri, we'd love to do this. Uh, whatever you need, we're happy to help. Uh, but please look at your contract. Uh, that was the thing that they said before the foreign minister departed. And when they looked closely at the contract of the space station, what they found was something that was in all the contracts that China had signed in Argentina, which is called the cross-default clause, meaning that if you renegotiate one project, Chinese project in Argentina, you have to renegotiate all your projects. That means they can accelerate the, the interest on the loan payments, the time on the loans. They can basically screw you economically. If you try to negotiate uh, something like a, a space station, so the Macri government in Argentina figured out they're really, you know, they got hoodwinked. They're really stuck with the space station that they have little oversight, little control, and little transparency of what's really going on there, uh, and that remains to this day. So this it's a good understanding of how China operates. Uh, you know, they call it economic coercion, uh, but it, it really uh, has tricked some of these governments, and and you know, it tricked maybe the country of Argentina, but it was done because the former president of Argentina probably was in on it. Wow, that is very predatory. That's the art of the deal. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they've done this in many countries. So uh, in other countries, like, and what I've told to our friends in Latin America, I have a lot of conversations with the, or more friendly governments, democratic allies. And I tell them, you know, there's this, this kind of, uh, I think, false uh, uh, thinking that was imposed on a lot of these countries. You know, China's also invested in a lot of soft power things. They have their Confucius Institutes, but it's more than that. They have think tanks and university professors and media to be able to draw this echo chamber that 
this drive this one fundamental narrative talking point that Latin America needs China, that the future of Latin America is with China. That that's the big the kind of psychological uh, message that they've been trying to implant in the region, and it's worked. And many foreign ministries have talked about, like they look at the future, you know, with China and the, the Pacific strategy. They actually created a, a democratic alliance called the Pacific Alliance, which was actually focused on trade with Asia. <laughs> but that didn't exclude China. It was trade with Japan, trade with Korea, trade with Australia, but also with China. And in that, what I tried to help was reverse that psychological damage that they've done. And I said, Latin America doesn't need, never needed China before the 21st century, doesn't need China today. Um, Latin America doesn't need China. China needs Latin America. China needs Latin America to complete its global ambition, to complete its uh, uh, warfare strategy. Uh, but the key to that is that in every single country in Latin America that China has been able to uh, uh, penetrate, uh, you need to find that one element that's critical for their strategy. In the case of Argentina, it's the space station. In the case of Peru, it could be that port. In the case of Ecuador, it's the Galapagos Islands. But once you as a, a, a sovereign country in Latin America figure out what China really wants from my territory – you don't have negotiating power and leverage to use against it. And Ecuador actually used it. Ecuador is the only country in Latin America to actually successfully renegotiate its debt with China. And they did it by finding out that the Galapagos Islands was really all China really cared about, not the hydropower, not the electric, not, not the oil deals. They really cared about that Galapagos Islands. Why? Because that's the closest point in the Pacific to be able to uh, encroach before you get into uh, the, the Western Hemisphere. Oh, I thought it was because they wanted to, uh, you know, do research into evolutionary biology. That could be part of it as well, <laughs> very much so. But, but no, this is the, and it's key for Latin Americans to realize this because they have to be able to gain leverage. And the United States, obviously, if we were in the game, we would actually be able to to, to capitalize on that leverage to push China out of Latin America. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned that, like, what the U.S. you know should be in the game. So, so how specifically? Uh, can the U.S. and maybe other uh, democratic countries like what can we do now to start to uh, you know roll back some of this Chinese influence, push back on it, uh, and and prevent the further spread of authoritarianism there? Yeah, so it's difficult uh, currently because of the current administration. The Biden administration has been not uh, everything they've done in Latin America has really just helped the authoritarians in the region. Uh, they've gone on this anti-corruption shot. I mean, nobody's a fan of corruption, but to equate small-scale corruption of basically appointing a minister because you got some bribe to large-scale corruption to where you've been indicted on over a billion dollars of public work projects like the case of the vice president of Argentina. And to conflate those together is silly, and it really just doesn't actually help advance any of our interests in the region. So it's a little bit difficult in that sense, but I think the power of the United States goes beyond our Washington. It goes beyond our government. And I think we have to focus both on cultural connections. We have a cultural affinity with Latin America beyond any other region in the world language, history, demographics. Uh, the United States is the third largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. Uh, you know, by 2030, I, can't, I think uh, the, the Hispanics, U.S. Hispanics, will be the largest minority in, in the region, in, in the United States. And I think we have to capitalize on this. China has none of that. China, there, there aren't, uh, I mean, there are Chinese uh, uh, diasporas in Latin America, but they don't outweigh the, the U.S.-Latin American connection. Uh, and so I think we have to start using that to our advantage. Um, and then the second part is I think we have to start prioritizing Latin America. Uh, we have strategies for many parts of the world, the Middle East, even the Indo-Pacific, but we don't have a strategy for Latin America. We haven't thought about the region in a strategic uh, mindset. Uh, and I think we, we need to do that. Actually, I'm part of an effort 
Uh, as I mentioned, I, I direct a think tank here in Washington called Center for Security Society. We're really a research think tank. So we have a bunch of research. That's how we get a lot, a lot of this knowledge about the actions of China. And we also look at Russia and Iran and in and, and the region. But I'm also a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And part of my role with the Heritage Foundation is to work on this project 2025. And so we've taken upon ourselves to actually create a strategy for Latin America that's a renewed Monroe Doctrine. It's, it's, it's going back to the, the Monroe Doctrine, which was looking at the European monarchies at the time and saying you're off limits when you come into the neighborhood that we share in the Western Hemisphere. Well, we need to go back to that because China and all of its ambitions will not accomplish any of those ambitions against the United States if it doesn't capture Latin America. You can argue that it's captured a good part of Latin America, but we're on the sixth, seventh inning. It's not uh, that game. We're not at the end game yet. So we need to act fast. We need to act uh, fierce. And we need to go back into Latin America and, and reinforce a new vision for like a new renewed Monroe doctrine of the source. So, so we have some details on how we want to accomplish that. But it begins by just prioritizing the region. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. This was an absolutely fascinating interview. Uh, if somebody watching wanted to follow you or learn more about the Center for a Secure Free Society, where should they go? Yeah, so, you know, you can go to our website, securefreesociety.org. I also recommend everyone go to our YouTube channel because we're doing a lot of videos. We also have a podcast as well called Border Wars. Uh, we talk about it. We use the word border wars, but it's not just about the U.S. southern border. Uh, we talk about sovereignty issues worldwide. We talk about geopolitical issues. We talk a lot about China, Iran, and Russia, and Latin America. Um, and, and I also have a visiting fellow Heritage Foundation. So you can go to Heritage Foundation's website. It's the Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Uh, and so I do a lot of my writing uh, with them. Uh, so I've written uh, about some of these issues uh, through through the Heritage Foundation. So uh, either there or, or Security Society. Uh, we have uh, a, pl a plethora of work. We actually have something that we paused this year just because we're transforming it. It's called the VRIC Monitor. It's V-R-I-C, which is Venezuela, Russia, Iran, and China. So it's an open source monitor that looks at these activities from these external actors in Latin America. Uh, we were doing it more in a report format, but we're now in the process of uh, adapting it to be a kind of a virtual map, essentially. So uh, we'll, we'll let you guys know as soon as it's online, uh, hopefully early in 2024. So that uh, your your readers, your listeners, uh, your watchers can all look at what China is doing in real time, uh, so they can see some of these uh, activities the way we see it. Uh, so we do this internally, but we wanted to make this available to the public as well. Tensions keep rising between the U.S. and Iran since the Israel-Hamas war began. Almost every week, Iranian-backed militias have attacked U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq. It's the latest example and a serious escalation of Tehran's use of proxy fighters like Hezbollah and Hamas. Tonight, you'll hear of another type of proxy that Iran deploys that receives far less attention. Tehran is hiring hitmen around the world in an effort to intimidate, abduct, and assassinate perceived enemies of the regime. And they're doing it right here on U.S. soil. 
This video was posted online by a channel affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. It vows to kill former American government officials, including President Trump, to avenge the 2020 U.S. assassination of the terrorism mastermind Qasem Soleimani. Threats like this have been deemed credible enough that several of these officials have been under round-the-clock protection, including former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Iran reportedly offered a hitman a million dollars to kill him, and John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor. They bargained the price for me would be $300,000, which I have to say I found insulting. So what exactly was the plot against you? The Revolutionary Guard sought to procure either my kidnapping or my assassination, uh, not directly by a Revolutionary Guard's member, but by seeking a hitman who would carry out the job uh, either in the U.S. or abroad. The FBI has an arrest warrant out for this Iranian officer claiming that he hired the hitman online to travel to Washington, corner Bolton in a garage, and kill him. But it turned out, lucky for Bolton, the assassin was an FBI informant. This was not Internet chatter. This was a negotiation to murder an American citizen, a former government official. Is the threat against you ongoing? We've got marked Secret Service cars that say police, United States Secret Service, outside my home. We talked to the FBI and several intelligence agencies, and they told us that Iran's efforts are becoming more frequent and bolder, and that they often go after vocal Iranian activists living abroad. The idea behind assassination plot, behind kidnapping plot, is to keep you silent. It's a beautiful family place. We met one of their targets in Brooklyn. Masi Alinajad is a leader in the women's revolt against the law in Iran, mandating they wear a headscarf or hijab. Forced to flee 14 years ago, she settled here in Brooklyn, where she encourages women back home to send her videos of them taking off the hijabs, and she spreads those images online to her 10 million or so followers, fueling the protest movement. So the mullahs began to focus on you. The FBI came and told you there was a plot against you. There were like six or seven FBI agents. When they came to my house, um, they told me that your life is in danger. I was like, okay, tell me something new. Because we Iranians are used to it. But they actually said, no, this time is different. They said that the Iranian regime hired private investigator on U.S. soil to take photos of your movement, your daily life, your routine. And I was like, wow. So they are here in New York, in Brooklyn. The plot was to kidnap you and take you by speedboat to Venezuela? Hey, it sounds like a scary movie to you, no? You no, don't even... it sounds implausible to me. You see, for, it's a reality for us. And a reality for the FBI that says the plan was to get her to Iran to stand trial. It was the same for Jamshid Sharmad, another Iranian dissident who lived in Los Angeles for two decades and created a website where people in Iran could report human rights abuses. 
In 2020, while he was changing planes in Dubai on a business trip, his family noticed his phone started heading in the wrong direction. His daughter, Giselle Sharmad, soon saw her dad pop up on Iranian TV in a courtroom looking petrified. He's forced to confessions about crimes he did not commit. The charge that they gave him is corruption on earth. That's why he got the death sentence. Is it a situation where he could actually be executed? Oh, yes. Any day? They want to hang him from a crane in the middle of the city. The original plot to kidnap Masi was thwarted. But according to the FBI, a year later, in 2022, Iran paid this Azerbaijani, living outside New York City, $30,000 to buy a semi-automatic rifle and kill her. He lurked outside her home for a week. His plan was to take advantage of her friendliness to her neighbors. He was actually following my life. He knew that. I was the one offering flowers to strangers. You offered flowers to strangers? Yeah, this is me. So he received a text message from the guy inside Iran saying that, go and knock the door, then take her to the backyard garden. If I had opened the door, I would have just given him a big smile and said, yes, let's go to my garden. And then he wanted to just kill me. Did he actually knock on your door? Yes. Her home security camera actually caught him on her porch trying to get in. Eventually, he took off, but was pulled over for running a stop sign. That's when the police found this in his car. He's been in custody awaiting trial ever since. But here's what's interesting. Neither he nor two other men the prosecutors say were hired for the job were Iranian. Like him, they were Eastern European, and, as is becoming a trademark of Iran's shadow war, they were criminals. They were all from criminal syndicate. This is what the Islamic Republic is really good at, like using drug dealers, using criminals to do their dirty job on the Western well, soil. Well, it maybe have deniability. Exactly. We didn't do it. That's the point. So why did they use proxies? to have somebody who is not being tracked by intelligence or security agencies for this. Matt Jukes, head of counterterrorism policing in Britain, says this is not just an American problem. In the UK, they have foiled 15 Iranian kidnapping and assassination attempts since last year. I have been involved in national security policing for over 20 years. What we've seen in the last 18 months is a real acceleration. We have been told that a lot of these criminal gangs hire other criminal gangs, and then maybe a third group. I think we're always going to see this uh, collaboration between criminal organizations. We know that this will not always be a direct line from a state organization to a threat to a potential kidnapping. This recording was given to us by a foreign intelligence agency. It shows how Iran recruits criminals. I received a call from the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard. This is an Iranian smuggler from Urmia, a town near the Turkish border. He reveals to the foreign agents that he was approached by Iran's Revolutionary Guard with a deal. They'll turn a blind eye to his smuggling if he helps them. 
Their request was that I find people who could work for them. What kind of work? Anything. Like catching someone for us so they could be beaten up or gotten rid of. This surveillance video shows him recruiting a fellow smuggler for the task. The man in white is Mansour Rasuli, an alleged drug dealer. He agreed to arrange assassinations throughout Europe for the Iranian government for money. But a few weeks later, Rasuli was kidnapped at night and interrogated in a car, reportedly by Israeli intelligence. They extracted this cell phone confession, where Rasuli admits he was paid $150,000 up front and promised a million dollars if he killed three people for the Iranians. One is an Israeli at the embassy in Istanbul, Turkey. Another one is an American general in Germany. And one is a journalist in France. The French target was identified as philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy, a vocal critic of the regime in Tehran. The identity of the American general remains a mystery. The plot to kill the three was prevented. But in recent years, Iranian dissidents were successfully kidnapped and smuggled to Iran. Several were executed. They've succeeded in Europe. They haven't succeeded in the United States, even though we know there are targets. Right. So many American officials and others are being targeted. Why is it not a bigger issue? Look, I think the targeting of American citizens by a hostile foreign government uh, is very close to an act of war. What would happen if they succeeded in assassinating someone like you, a well-known former official? Well, I wouldn't like to find out uh, for, for myself or for the country, but why are we sitting here quietly talking about this? when they're, in effect, uh, saying they're going to commit acts of war against American citizens on American soil. Does the fact that Iran feels emboldened to come after our citizens, does it mean we've lost our deterrence? Well, I think we have lost deterrence. And I think this also goes to an unwillingness on the part of the administration to confront the Ayatollahs in a way that they understand. They can challenge U.S. government on U.S. soil, without any punishment, then what's the reason to well, stop? there are sanctions against them. Sanction is not sufficient. Sanction what is not helping. What do you want helping. us to do, drop a bomb? No. Look, when you negotiate with the killers, you're empowering them. The Biden administration didn't respond to our request for an interview. The Islamic Republic... When Masi Alinejad was called to testify before Congress about Iran in September, she said that unless the administration's policy changes, her life will continue to be in danger. I believe that when I'm not in the spotlight, when media like you are not paying attention to me, finally they're going to come after me. While she now has the freedom to speak her mind in America, she does not have the freedom to live where she wants. Masi and her family have had to go into hiding under FBI protection. It's like, wow, the government from my own country trying to kill me, but my adopted country trying to protect me. You have to be an Iranian to survive assassination plot, to understand that how it feels. 
to survive in America and to have the platform and to criticize the U.S. government. You're tearing up. Tell me why you're tearing up. Because people in my country get killed for criticizing, get shot in head for the crime of criticizing. Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here back with you again. Today, we're going to be talking about an absolutely out of control government debt situation. You need to know about this. You need to be prepared for what's coming. I want you to become resilient because, oh my goodness, there is a total storm coming and I have to talk to you about that. So let's go there right now. Out of control debt. We are entering what I'm going to call the terminal phase. This is when exponential functions get away from you. And we could see things get out of control very quickly. Hyperbolic? Well, let's look at this very quickly. This is a chart. And by the way, everybody should know how to read charts. It's a really valuable life skill. I'm going to walk everybody through this one. This is the U.S. 10-year note. This is the 10-year treasury note. And it's across, uh, what, about three months of data here. And you can see it went from about 3.8% to closing in on almost 5% as of today which is October 19th, we are looking at 4.95%, just a whisker away from 5%. It's the interest rate has been relentlessly rising. Now, why is that? That's what we have to talk about. Interest rates are the opposite in a seesaw fashion with the price of the bond. So because the interest rate is rising, that means the price is falling. That means people are selling. There are more sellers than buyers of these bonds. So the yield goes up. This has a lot of impacts on our lives, but I think this could get out of control soon. And here's why. Mystery solved. Who's been doing all the selling? This is a chart of U.S. federal debt. I pulled this from uh, the debt to the penny. comes straight from the U.S. Treasury Department itself. Three lines on here. On the bottom is what's called intragovernmental holdings, which is a fancy way of saying a rated Social Security trust fund. When that orange line on the bottom is rising, the government is taking money that you've paid in through your FICA payroll taxes, and they're using that to send to Ukraine and other things like that. They they throw it into general government spending. The next line up is called debt held by the public. That's the blue line. And then the red line is the sum of those two lines. I think you can clearly see that really the driver in this show is debt held by the public, that blue line. That is the one driving this. Now, there's a couple of very important things we're going to talk about on this chart. When you understand them, the future will become clear. And unfortunately, you may not like the implications of that future, but you deserve to know about it. So I'm going to bring it to you here. Well, what would we notice about this chart? Well, let's start here. I've drawn a black line on it, which is the slope. See that black line that's sort of cutting across that last part of the top red line there? That tells us what the slope of government borrowing has been, and it's a lot. And by the way, I took that same dark line, just copy-pasted it, and moved it over to a period earlier, around 2013, where you can see, ooh, yeah, the government was going deeper and deeper into debt all the time from 2013 through 2020. But then post-COVID, it's got a whole new line. Believe it or not, it looks like an optical illusion, or maybe it is an optical illusion, because Those two lines are exactly the same. I just copy-pasted. You could get a little ruler out and hold it up to the screen and move it across, and you'll see that that's the same line 
what I'm trying to convey here is that the new slope of government borrowing is vastly steeper than it was prior to what it was in 2020. Like 2013, 2020, yeah, you know, it's about a trillion dollars a year. Now it's way higher than that. So how much higher? Let's go there. This is, I show you that inflection point happens right there at July 1st, 2020. And since July 1st, 2020, the U.S. government has added 7.2 trillion more dollars. That's what that big number is up there. 7219720619850. That's 7.219 trillion dollars. That works out to 2.2 trillion dollars per year because that's a 3.3 year time frame from 7-1-2020 to here at 10-19-2023. 2.2 trillion dollars a year. Ay ay ay. But that last little bit up there to the far right on that right line, what that little thing that I've circled right there? That's what's happened over the past 134 days. So that's about, I don't know, about a third of a year or so, give or take. And that has gone explosive. You've probably seen it in the news. So we're going to talk about that for real quick. Since the debt ceiling got raised, and that's what we're seeing. See that flat spot right there before that green square? That flat spot is when the debt ceiling was being held. And then they made a deal. And since then, well, they've had to do some extra borrowing since then. Since then, there's been $1.8 trillion in new borrowing since the debt ceiling was raised. That's in 134 days. Since Because that's 36.7% of a year, I said it's about a year, 134 days. What does that mean? It means that if we have 365 days of borrowing at the same rate we've had for the past 134 days, that works out to 4.96 trillion dollars per year. This is extraordinary. It's explosive. It means that in the last month we've had and that's from 917 September 17th through to 1017, which is where I pulled the data from, 600 billion dollars of new borrowing in just a month. 600 billion new borrowing. That is the Treasury Department going out into the market and saying we'd like to sell more bonds to you. Remember, the price of a bond and its yield are an oppositional seesaw. So when they're selling more bonds, they're driving the price down. That's driving the yield up. That's what's been happening. It's not a big mystery. Very easy to understand. If we just make this really silly, we break it down. In 134 days, there are 3,216 hours. That means that the U.S. government debt has been increasing at the pace of $566 million per hour since July 1st, 2000. Um, oh, no, sorry. In the past 134 days. Um, which gets us back to about June in this story. Uh, but the government doesn't work 24 hours a day. So if we said they work eight hours a day, there are 1,072 working hours in the past 134 days. That means that the government has been deficit spending at $1.7 billion per working day. Uh, overall, that's $13.6 billion per day. The U.S. government has been deficit spending at $13.6 billion per day for the past 134 days. This is extraordinary. This is why inflation is being driven up. This is very easy to understand. When you have more money being spent, 
than is being taken in by the federal government, this is a strong driver of inflation. If you've been wondering why your grocery bill is so high, why your rent is going up, if you've been wondering why your property taxes have been going up or your insurance for your car, your house, if you've been wondering about your health care premiums, that's very easy to understand. We can understand all of that in these numbers here. This is unacceptable because this means that the U.S. government has been specifically targeting and harming middle class to lower middle class people because they disproportionately share the burden of having their cost of living go up. Cost of living doesn't really affect Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. Eh, doesn't really matter. They don't even notice. But for somebody who's just trying to get by, this is devastating. And this is where it starts. And by the way, if we back this up, we can see that this actually has been going on since July 1st, 2020. It's just, it's been explosive. So what do we make of that? Well, and here we are. So interest rates are spiking. <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, it means things like, well, obviously mortgage interest rates are climbing. Interest rates are near 8% now for a 30-year mortgage. That means that mortgage demand has fallen to the lowest level since 1995. This means people can't afford to buy houses at these prices. House prices are going to have to come down. Wages are going to have to go way up <clears throat> or some combination, but this means that people who want to start a household, they're just screwed in this story. It's impossible to make the numbers work. <coughs> Excuse me. Remember, it was just a little while ago, Cynthia Loomis asked Jerome Powell in a Senate hearing, hey, it's the United States federal government debt growth. Is this unsustainable? And he said, well, no, but the problem, quote, the problem is that we're on a path where the debt is growing substantially faster than the economy. And that, by definition, in the long run, is unsustainable. And he's absolutely right. It's very easy to say it's unsustainable. I would also question whether U.S. government debt is sustainable all on its own, because you can see I've carefully put in a little hockey stick down there. Remember, I'm the guy who talks about exponential growth. If you watch the crash course in that first chapter, we go over exponential growth. You need to understand it. Bottom line. All you need to understand is that things speed up towards the end. Once that hockey stick corner gets turned, that's when things go faster and faster and faster. If you feel like the world is going faster and faster and you can't make sense of it, welcome to the world of living in exponential growth. So our debt in the United States has turned the corner. It is now growing exponentially. You see, I had to actually add that little bar up there to, to make this chart current. I'm going to laugh about it. Because that's where we are. As bad as it is, folks, it is now projected to get worse. This is from the Peterson Foundation, where they look at where we are today, which is that little that little dotted line, that little dotted line there. Um, and you can see, look at the what that projected part going forward. What's projected to happen to the federal debt as a percent of GDP, which is the income in this story. And I think all I want you to do is notice the shape of that. Right, it goes right, goes up like that. You've seen this shape before. They are saying that our debt is about to explode exponentially faster. You know what happens in between here and somewhere in that story? Our currency system breaks down. Oldest story in the book, those in power, it's never a good time to have an emergency. They always want to kick the can down the road. We're out of road. They've kicked the can as far as they can, and now they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. And this, of course, is going to impact you. I need you to understand that so that you can become prepared and resilient. I really don't want you to get harmed by what's about to come. So what does that look like? Well, 
we see I helpfully put the little hockey stick in there, right, for you. All right, here's what you do. You become resilient at peak prosperity. We talk about building eight forms of capital, financial capital. Really good to have lots of financial capital. There's things you can do to manage your financial capital better, but none are so poor as those who only have money. To those of you out there thinking, you know, I'm pretty well, uh, I'm set, I've got a pretty good nest egg, I think I can weather this storm, you're right and you're wrong. You're right because you'll be better positioned to weather the storm, but you're not right if that's all you have because, well, let's talk about, say, emotional capital down there at the four o'clock position, five o'clock down there. If you fall apart at the first sign of trouble, if you get tunnel vision, if you can't think clearly, if your faculties to process shut down because of the emergency that's coming, I don't care how much money you have. You are not going to make good decisions and you're probably going to make some serious blunders. So having your emotional capital topped off, very important. Knowledge capital. What do you know how to do? What skills do you have? If you don't have money, like, ah, Chris, this doesn't matter to me. I don't have any money to invest. It does matter because you can be building your knowledge capital up. This is something that everybody can transport with them wherever they live, right? I can take my skills with me. Hey, if I know how to distill spirits, I'm going to be a pretty popular dude if I go to a place where they don't know how to do that, right? If I know how to build houses, if I know how to uh, process chickens, these are all skills that are really important to have. So that's knowledge capital you see down there at about the three thirty, four o'clock position. Material capital is where a lot of people start and unfortunately stop in this story. They're like, what do I need? I'm going to buy some, some, you know, get some stored food in my basement. I'll get some extra sets of clothes and shoes. I'm going to make sure that my house has uh, solar on it. These are all great things to do, but this isn't where the conversation ends. Having material capital is really important, especially in a time of high inflation. So to have the ability to have a deep pantry, for instance, where you have a lot of that material capital. It's in a deep pantry. You've got 30 cans of tuna fish, but that's how many you might eat in an entire year. Well, <clears throat> you put them in that deep pantry, you rotate them through, and then you will be shocked in a year when you get to the end of that and you look at the price on the lid, you're going to be like, oh, it was that cheap once, right? Because that's the nature of being in a high inflationary environment. These, each of these eight forms of capital, I won't go through them all now. These are the things that we talk about at Peak Prosperity. So I want you to consider coming by Peak Prosperity because I want you to be resilient. I want you to be able to avoid some of the troubles that are coming. That's why we are the number one online resilience community. We've got incredible people there talking about all of this. Hey, come for the amazing analysis I provide, but you're going to stick around for all the other amazing people. We have a, a deep and vibrant community at Peak Prosperity wrestling with all of these conversations that we need to have. And by the way, we have a complete no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. Try us for 30 days. Day 29, you're like, not my cup of tea. No problem. You get your money back. Um and just uh, for now, you can join for 30% off. So we'll make it even easier. Just use that info code down, the info 30 code in the checkout process. Very easy. There's a box that says, do you have a code? You put info 30 in there and you will get 30% off. And by the way, here's an example of the kinds of conversations that we are having in our community behind our paywall. And we do that. We have a paywall for a couple of reasons. People ask why we have it. Well, we're running a business and we have expenses, but most importantly, we do it for you. Keeps the trolls out. We have one of the most civil conversational areas. 
even with the whole explosion in the Middle East, we had a lot of people having strong passions, but it never became uncivil. We were able to have conversations with each other. That is the culture we have at Peak Prosperity. These are times are tough enough without us having the inability to have reasoned, full-throated, wide-ranging conversations. And by the way, nothing is off the table. We will talk about it all. And finally, um, I'll just leave you with a couple things. These are very recent testimonials. I think these capture well the spirit of what it means to be part of the Peak Prosperity Tribe. Rector wrote here, this is why I'm a paying member here in response to a, a common thread we had. He said, I intuitively know something is off, but I don't have time the time to sift through the data and establish it as fact. Chris does this for me, just as I've done for here for you today. This is what I do daily at my own website with my community. And I continue preparing for the future that these kinds of shenanigans tell me is inevitable. Making life choices and resource allocation choices is hard if you're unsure of the rationale. It's hard to be confident when the propaganda is so thick. The end is nigh. Thanks for summing it up for me. It's all BS. Rector. One more. Um, YR 1970 wrote, Hey, thank you, Chris, for your unwavering commitment to delivering accurate and unbiased information about all topics. Your objective reporting and refusal to take any side but the truth are greatly appreciated. Many independent channels are objective until the issue of Israel comes up and then they toe the line. I'm proud that you do not. You always provide a valuable perspective to allow us um, to uh, form an opinion and our own opinion. Keep up the excellent work. And that is who I am and it's what I do. I don't take sides. I present data. I present context. We talk about the truth of the situation as best as we can have it. Look, we might not like it that the world is going this direction, but putting our heads in the sand, son, that's no way to go through life, particularly not at a time like this. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. The U.S. government is in the terminal stage of this story. Remember, folks, how do you go broke? Slowly, then all at once. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.